$12.50 a month, which is a sustaining contribution, you can get the famous public radio tote bag, which features the phrase, this is the tote bag they keep talking about on public radio and this American Life logo at the bottom, printed in black. It's simply our way of saying thank you. Another way of saying thank you is because of our partnership with the Capital Area Food Bank. That contribution of $12.50 a month, a sustaining membership, will also be able to provide 30 meals for people who need them here in Washington, D.C. It's simply our way of saying thank you. But most important, reason number one, you're listening, so become a member now. Call 202-885-8850 or make your contribution online at wamu.org. And thank you. WAMU members provide the financial support critical to pay for the news and information you rely on every day. The best way to fit a WAMU donation into your budget is to become a sustaining member. Make automatic monthly contributions with no yearly membership renewal to worry about. Donate $11, $22, $45 a month. The amount is up to you. Please become a sustaining member today at 800-248-8850 or at WAMU.org. From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Kojo Nandi Show, connecting your neighborhood with the world. In eighth grade, she built a solar-powered house for a school science fair. As an engineering student at MIT, she helped build a solar-powered car that raced 2,000 miles across the uh, Australian outback. Didn't win, by the way. And as an executive at Google, she led the business development team that helped acquire what became Google Earth and Google Maps. Now Megan Smith has relocated from Silicon Valley to the White House, where she's the U.S. chief technology officer. Her job? advising the president on innovation and tech policy. In her first few months on the job, she's reportedly weighed in on net neutrality and on assembling experts to improve the protective suits for health workers who fought Ebola. Some say the job is a challenge because it's loosely defined and doesn't come with a big budget, but that doesn't seem to bother her. Her newest project is an initiative the president announced yesterday to train more Americans for technology jobs. Megan Smith joins us in studio. She is the United States Chief Technology Officer. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Kojo, and everybody. Nice to be here. Thank you. You studied mechanical engineering at MIT and landed at Google working in the secretive Google X lab and heading the new business development operation. What did you do there? Yeah, so uh, I joined Google when we were about just over 1,000 people um, in uh, 2003, and I led a team called New Business Development where we were supporting the engineering and product management teams around the world as they were starting things like Chrome and Android and uh, book search or all kinds of topics. So really doing the beginnings of the deals. So whether we were licensing technology or whether we were doing the first kinds of partnerships, uh, you know, for example, with the libraries and the publishers for book search or, you know, the the technology might build, uh, need to build Chrome or even some special things like uh, there was a Google Lunar X Prize that we did with the XPRIZE Foundation uh, to get uh, private rovers to, to the moon. Uh, so it could be a contract like that and a partnership like that. So that was my team, and we were all over the world. We helped start uh, some of the offices in Africa um, as Google entered that continent, and it was an amazing, amazing team to be part of. Got to ask, are you using a government-issued BlackBerry? Have you experienced culture shock in your transition from Silicon Valley to Washington? A lot of people ask me that. Uh, today I have my Android device and I have a BlackBerry. Also, I uh, was yes, just she's using, using my one. iPad. <laughs> I have a Dell laptop. I mean, I'm like any brand, I, we use all kinds of stuff. I also have, you know, great maker stuff like Arduino boards and uh, that kind of fun stuff. You're using a bunch of devices. Yes, have you ever figured out how to put your mother's bicycle back together? <laughs> yeah, my stepmom is still frustrated about that. Yes. You did that when you were, what, 14 years old? I don't know. I don't or remember. maybe younger. You took yeah. the bicycle apart and put all the parts in a box someplace. Yes. And didn't put it back together. <laughs> President Obama created the chief technology position, and you were the third person to hold this job, following Anish Chopra and Todd Park, both of whom we've talked with on this show. You don't oversee government IT, so what exactly does the chief technology officer do? Yeah, so um, the job is really an advising, almost an instigation job. So where you're you're trying to help government be better at leveraging data, leveraging technology, innovation, and innovation, innovative people. Uh, and so, 
we work on three different areas right now, um, kind of defined by what's important in the country at the time. So one area you already mentioned, technology policy, which Anish was really start of, part of starting that practice. Everything from net neutrality to privacy to patent reform and all the technical things uh, that, that are going on around government where we can have a policy point of view that needs a technical person informing. So we bring that, of course, bringing all kinds of American people into that conversation from the different areas, the different coalitions. Um, the second area that we work on is uh, an area called, I call it digital open data-driven government. So how do we work with our colleagues to structure government? doesn't mean, like you said, we don't, we don't, we're not running the engineering. We don't run NASA. We don't run the government websites. The, each of the agencies, of course, run their own websites, have their own chief information officers there. But how do we structure ourselves so that we can have the best websites and the best mobile sites? You know, this is, America is the place where people invented Amazon. You know, invented Facebook, invented Twitter, you know, these great American companies that we should have those people in government. I call it TQ, like EQ and IQ. Mm -hmm. We need more TQ. Sometimes we have these fabulous car and we just have one flat tire because we're, we're driving down the road with this great team of economists and legislators and writers, but we're missing our technical teammate. So it doesn't mean government would build everything ourselves. Of course, we have this amazing set of technical people that the government contracts with. But having great technical people at the table, whether it's in the first area, that policy area, or as we're building and deciding, you know, services for veterans, services for immigration, so these, these web services that we're running on behalf of the American people, IRS and taxes, there should be a technical person who is state-of-the-art, you know, an Amazon, Facebook-type level preferably engineer. preferably a high TQ. High TQ, <laughs> you know, at the table, helping architect, helping procure. Well, we're one of the... Um, your government buys, I think it's $450 billion of things. So we're one of the largest purchasers in the world, and we should be good at purchasing, including having technical people part of buying technical things. Our guest is Megan Smith. She's the United States Chief Technology Officer. If you have questions or comments for Megan Smith, give us a call at 800-433-8850. What do you think the top priority of the nation's Chief Technology Officer should be? 800-433-8850. You could send email to kojo at wmu.org. Shoot us a tweet at Kojo Show or go to our website, kojoshow.org. Join the conversation there. What are your top priorities as Chief Technology Officer? Yeah, so... Um, talked a little bit of tech policy, a little bit of getting the government architected for the great talent for digital government. The third area we focus on, we nickname Innovation Nation, which is how do we get more people into these kind of fun, collaborative, high-paying, interesting, high-impact jobs that we got to be part of in Silicon Valley or Boston, Austin, those places, but all over this country. Um, yesterday, we were uh, able to announce the president's new initiative called Tech Hire, which kind of came up with that name, you know, learn tech, get hired, right? We have, uh, we have um, twelve, we have five million jobs open in the United States right now, and uh, uh, half a million of those are in um, the area of tech, IT, uh, information technology. A lot of people think that to qualify for that kind of job, you need an advanced degree or computer science four-year degree. But in fact, of course, we need those people in the teams. But there's also entry-level jobs. And there's these wonderful new code boot camps and online courses and other short courses where you could train for these jobs, which, which pay 50% more than your average sort of uh, average American you know, private sector job. You could train for this in you know, three months using these code boot camps and some apprentices in. So we, we worked to, to structure this with St. Louis, with Louisville, with Philly, with New York City, and with the state of Delaware, who were all starting to play with these new models. What they found was that the employers in their region had really structured themselves in terms of hiring or HR to really look only at the resumes who were, you know, the four-year or the two-year degrees. And so what they did was the local employers began to adapt because they, of course, are going to keep hiring those, but they had so many more jobs to fill that they wanted to become more agile to also include somebody who might have trained from a coding boot camp. So the local communities had started to work that way across many employers. Saw this in St. Louis, uh, one of the boot camps, Launch Code, had worked with uh, 80 different employers. Um, to, to take people. And so they would pick up two, three, four people in this process and then start to ramp that. And now they're really, these cities and now a total of 21 have joined, want to ramp this as a way to onboard all kinds of people 
into the tech sector with these higher paying jobs. When you say they have joined this, you mean that the president initiatives create creates a structure by which these cities or corporations can join and be able to access people who have been decoding boot camps and the like? Yeah, and it, it's really a, a way of cross-sharing best practice. What we are doing is convening these various folks through the fall. Uh, uh, we were convening people on how they were doing this. So if you were from a corporation and you wanted to participate, could you speak with other companies who had changed their hiring practices, hear how they did that, what were the challenges, what was working, put together a best practices playbook and really get that cohort going. For the code boot camps, what were they doing? What challenges were they having? How were they able to reach across all Americans so that, especially in technology, we're very limited on women, people of color. We just we really need much more of American talent at the table, veterans, et cetera. So how were those code boot camps reaching to those uh, groups? How were they, they getting students? Were they working with local community colleges to begin to embed the programs? So kind of building these cohorts. And then we also found local municipal leaders, uh, the mayor and the workforce development folks of Louisville had done an extraordinary job of reaching out to these two groups, their local employers and the new kind of this new kind of training to get them all working in an ecosystem to really onboard a lot more people from Louisville into these jobs. The president yesterday in his speech to the National to the National League of Cities was really clear about how this is it's such an important economic priority, both locally because you don't want the companies to leave if they can't get talent, but also just competitive-wise nationally. And uh, one of the great things with the technology jobs is they also bring other jobs with them. And so you sort of, you're creating an ecosystem of hiring through this kind of a In case initiative. you're just joining us, it's a Tech Tuesday conversation with Megan Smith, United States, United States Chief Technology Officer. You can send us a tweet at Kojo Show. We got one from, this is an NPR fan, who says, I would like to know how the Chief Technology Officer feels about tech education in schools. It seems like most of it is glorified game playing. Yeah, uh, this is such a critical question. Um, We were lucky during uh, Computer Science Education Week, which is in December, to have the president work together with this great organization called Code.org, which is helping us get coding into the schools and several other great groups who are committing uh, to help do this. But uh, he actually became the coder-in-chief because he was participating and role modeling for students to try the Hour of Code, which is one of the programs from Code.org. But we were we had uh, 60 school districts sign up to really work on embedding computer science learning, programming and coding learning into middle and high school, including seven of the top uh, school districts, the largest school districts in the country. We really need kids to have hands-on. One of the key things here is we... You could talk to an adult, and you, most people would not tell you that, oh, reading, that was kind of hard. I didn't really learn that. But there are many adults who would say, math, yeah, that wasn't for me. And we got to change that culture because numeracy and literacy are both important 21st century skills. And we've got to adapt our teaching so that when we're in school, we're not making people feel bad that if they don't understand this thing that can be complicated and take grit to learn, but adapt how we're learning so kids are interested Kids want to know why they're doing the math. Why are they doing the science? What's the impact on the world? And if we include them with that and have them ha- get their hands on. I was lucky to do science fair, as you said, you know, the science fair projects. Getting your hands on lets you know the real practical thing. also gives you confidence that you could do it. And, you know, just like learning to write. You know, you don't start with an essay. You start with letter, you know, letter writing, and, and then you get into sentences and on up. You know, same thing with science and tech and discovery and making. And we want a nation of makers, coders, discoverers. You talk a lot about the importance of getting more women into technical fields. Now that you have the president's ear, what are you telling him about STEM education and about recruiting and retaining women in technology? Critical. Women and people of color, all kinds of people in because, uh, you know, it's really when you have all of American talent at the table, we, you know, it's proven in research that diverse teams just make better products. Um, really extraordinary research that's come through. I divide the problem into three groups. I think about the kids, you know, pre-K to, to seniors in high school. What are we doing with our kids, like the last uh, the, the question we had? What are we doing to really get this stuff in class, during class, hands-on, fun, impactful things? There's lots of work going on there. Um, we're continuing to push that and stand up everything we can find uh, that are working models there. Also, the President's Initiative uh, Connect Ed which is really getting internet Wi-Fi into the classroom, not just to the building, so that people can use these modern tools together and flip their classrooms and have the teachers in a coach model. The second area I think about is university students. 
you know, we lose a lot of university students or they don't try computer science and, and STEM. How do we help bring them? There's great breakthroughs from people like Harvey Mudd where, um, you know, sometimes people have come to college when they've already been coding for years and years. And so it's hard to, it's a little intimidating to walk into that class if you haven't. So they actually split their entry classes. They have, their colors are black and gold. So the black team goes to, uh, is the elite programmers and they, those classes are for people you know, know to code, gold is for those who don't. The third area I always think about is professionals, whether you're at a university working, whether you're in a company, what are we doing around advancement? That's an area that we really need a lot of debugging. Intel just announced a $300 million grant. Uh, we're seeing people really trying to dive in and figure out how we're going to improve the pipeline as well as do work on advancement. What lessons from Silicon Valley do you hope to bring to Washington in terms of encouraging and supporting innovation and entrepreneurship in particular? Yeah, uh, I, I have a saying which is people do things. They don't just magically happen. So the more we uh, as an administration can pay attention to the entrepreneurs uh, of whatever the idea is and really getting the entrepreneurs together, for example, in this tech hire initiative, the entrepreneurs who started the code boot camps, the entrepreneurs in the cities like St. Louis and Louisville, I was talking about, you know, the mayors, and, and get them working with each other. Uh, I really believe in entrepreneurs, whether they're social entrepreneurs, you know, like Clara Barton was, or whether they're, you know, science entrepreneurs like George Washington Carver or a J.P. Morgan, you know, economic entrepreneur. How are we as administration coming under that and bringing, creating policy that really fuels those people to be able to do their amazing things? The White House set up the U.S. Digital Service last summer to improve the public's digital interactions with government. What role will you play in that effort? Yeah, we were a big part of architecting that. So that's a good example of Team CTO, where our job is to see an opportunity. You know, this largely came out of healthcare.gov. You know, we struggled with that website, and the president saw that he was missing a set of talent in government and went and got some of this, this the folks who built you know, I you know I came from Google, folks who build Amazon, other ones to come into government. So, United States Digital Service is really an elite uh, team that's uh, hub and spokes. They're embedded at the VA, you know, in Homeland Security, in the various places, as well as at the Office of Management and Budget, and working on these top priority websites and web services for the American people. On to the telephones. We'll go to Catherine in Woodbine, Maryland. Catherine, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yes. Hi. Um, I just turned on my call and was listening to this conversation. I find it fascinating. Um, I'm a former English teacher. I have five kids, and my husband is an inventor, master programmer. And so I'm finding all of my kids are going towards programming. <laughs> so as an English teacher, I've learned to adapt, and I've done the supplemental math, and I found the Common Core was exactly what my kids were looking for. And then the supplemental programming courses that are offered, you know, and Raspberry Pi. I, I think it's definitely a need um, when you have kids. I always felt even early, even though I didn't like math, to introduce them and make them not fearful of math early on. So you have four STEM kids, and since you teach English, they could be considered STEAM kids, shouldn't they? (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, they prefer math over everything, I mean, or comic books. So um, they love the Hour of Code. They've done Minecraft programming, Raspberry Pi with their father, who is in security for mobile devices. And so as a mom who's English, <laughs> I just do the best I can. And I actually find teaching them uh, through Singapore math and that kind of common core concept has retaught me. And I wish I had been taught that way because I find I enjoy math much more than English now. You're making Megan Smith way too happy. Yeah, I'm super happy. So there's several things you said that I love. First off, I love that the kids have their hands on all these different tools you mentioned, especially Raspberry Pi, you know, Arduino, oh, yeah. these emerging boards. And, you know, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, when they were went to the homebrew computing club, they brought a board, right, as a bigger board. But you're talking about a small board, the board that sits inside of our cell phones. Uh, so these great teams have broken those out and making them available to kids so they can plug in speakers and keyboards and a screen and make their own little computer. What's interesting is the U.K. is rolling those out across the country. They actually make them in Wales. Um, it came out of Cambridge University. We have uh, some from Intel and, and Arduino is also an American one. Um, so similar idea, but those are in classroom with second graders, third graders. You know, if a second grader knows how to read enough, 
they can definitely program a computer just like they can read a recipe. So just thinking of this stuff without borders. I love that you said STEAM because, uh, you know, science, technology, engineering, art, and math. Um, I also love, Catherine, that you've jumped in because part of this is continuous learning. You know, so many people now are going to live to be 100 years old, and there's so many incredible things in the world to be part of. You know, and so you shouldn't have artificial boundaries between, you know, art or science. I'm a math person. I'm a science person. I'm, I'm this person. You know, it can all flow together and be part of really making an impact on the world with whatever tools one has available and whether teammates are there that you can team up with an entrepreneur and, and make, make a difference in the We're world. recreating renaissance persons. Exactly. We're talking, and Catherine, thank you very much for your call. We'll, we're talking after the break about the tech challenges of archiving and accessing government emails. What can the private sector in general and Google in particular teach the government about storing and retrieving vast amounts of electronic data? Yeah, so... Um That's part of, uh, you know, already the government is good at this. The, you know, the National Archives and others are doing a terrific job. But technology moves really fast. And so we want to put ourselves in a position where our policies allow for evergreen uh, work. You know, we're not locking down to a particular solution, but we're, we have what's the principle we're trying to achieve. And then people can flow different technology solutions into that. That's very important as we're policymaking so we can keep moving. And then again, bringing the best of the American private sector to bear, you know, into our architecting and thinking uh, so that we have, you know, just those Americans, just like we would have the best economists, you know, coming into government and advising and participating. We also, the, one of the great things the United States Digital Service has pioneered is, much like the, the Army Reserves and the military reserves, we have digital reserves. So we actually have uh, Americans with tech talent who come for two weeks. They come for three months. They come for six months, a, you know, or a year. We, we think of them as tour of, tours of duty uh, as digital architects. And so we really could have the most expert Americans on a certain topic in the technical arena come for periods of time to government. And the USDS, the United States Civil Service, has structured that. So anybody listening who's interested, we, we want you. Well, we're glad you're going to be staying for a slightly longer time than I just am. a few months. And we are hoping that Washington doesn't curb your enthusiasm. At I this love point. Washington. So far, it seems to be increasing your enthusiasm. But Megan Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Kudu. Megan Smith is United States Chief Technology Officer. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll remind you that this is the fourth day of our winter membership campaign. And then more of Tech Tuesday. I'm Kojo Nandi. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from Comcast Business. With internet that's built from the ground up to be reliable, Comcast Business is built for business. More information about business-grade internet, voice, and TV is at comcastbusiness.com. And from General Dynamics Data Center Solutions, transforming, securing, maintaining, and hosting government IT enterprises. General Dynamics Data Center Solutions, gdit.com slash data center. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the host of Marketplace, here with the top three reasons you ought to support public radio and your local station. Number three, because without driveway moments, you wouldn't have a break all day. Number two, you're too good to buy tote bags off the rack. Come on. And the number one reason you should support public radio is that people with difficult names also need jobs too, you know. Seriously, we can't do what we do without listeners like you. Here's how to help, and thanks. And you can help by calling 202-885-8850 on this fourth day of our winter membership campaign. You can also make a contribution online at wamu.org. We have a goal this hour of $6,000, and we still have $4,996 left to reach that goal. We are confident that you can help us to accomplish that goal, but you have to make that call now, 202 202- 885-8850. And joining me in studio with more reasons why you should make that call is producer Kathy Golgar. Yes. Well, as you already know, every Tuesday at noon, the Kojo Nambadi Show brings you Tech Tuesday. Sometimes we give you the chance to talk to leaders in the tech world, like we just did with U.S. Chief Technology Officer Megan Smith. Sometimes we bring you panel discussions that delve into policy questions like net neutrality or whether phone companies should be allowed to end landline service. Sometimes we give you tech you can use, like how to pick a data plan for your smartphone or why podcasts are suddenly so popular. 
And on the first Tuesday of the month, you enjoy the insights and the unique humor of our computer guys and gal. You spend a lot of time with Kojo on Tech Tuesday because these discussions help you make sense of the fast-changing world of technology. We put a lot of thought into these shows, and now it's time for you to put something into your financial support. We need your donation to keep Tech Tuesday going strong, so please consider becoming a sustaining member. For $20 a month or whatever level's comfortable for you, you can take the high-tech road and go to our website, wamu.org, to make your donation, or you can take the lower-tech but equally effective route and pick up the phone. The number is 202-885-8850. And for that contribution of $20 a month of a thank you because of our partnership with the Capital Area Food Bank, your $20 a month sustaining membership will be able to provide 50 meals for people who need them in the Washington area. And, you know, this is Tech Tuesday. And Tech Tuesday started out with the computer guys more than 20 years ago. And in those days, because the digital environment was not that large a part of our lives, the computer guys fixated on fixing, fixing the problems that people were having with their computers. However, as the digital world has expanded and it has has become a more integral part of our lives, Tech Tuesday was really the demand of the listeners to the computer guys who said, look, there's a lot more that we need to talk about. Developments in the tech world take place so fast that we need to have a regular broadcast in which people talk about this on a regular basis, and we responded by creating what is now Tech Tuesday. The listeners to Tech Tuesday are, well, now everybody. In those days, it was used to be techies who were focused on the program. Not anymore. It's everybody. And when we say everybody, we mean you. You're listening to Tech Tuesday because you have a mobile device or some other digital device somewhere around you. We're asking you to use that device right now and either make a call to 202-885-8850 or go online to wamu.org or become a member and become a member or renew your membership now. That number again, 202-885-8850. And Kojo, you're talking about people and people wanting more technology information. And we love Tech Tuesday here, but despite all the technology we all use every day, we also know that some things still cannot be done by machines. And they require real people, like bringing you the news from NPR and from WAMU and the discussions you hear on the Diane Reem Show and on the Kojo Namdi Show. It still takes people with training, with intelligence, with experience in the community to bring you the programs that you rely on every day. Even our high-tech sound equipment isn't totally automated. It takes real people like our engineer, Timmy Olmsted, and, of course, our wonderful host, Kojo Namdi, to bring you the news and information that impacts your life. But you can use a machine to give us your financial support. You can go to our website, wamu.org. Or you can call 202-885-8850. We hope you'll become a member today. And there are some things, as you point out, Kathy, that only people can do. Only people can keep this station running with your support because that, frankly, is our business model. We don't have a great deal of corporations buying commercials on a regular basis, as you will hear if you happen to listen to a commercial station someplace. There will be a great deal of interruptions. Every five or ten minutes, you'll hear three or four commercials. You won't hear that when you listen to WAMU 88.5. This is long-form radio. It's a lot like when you read a newspaper or a magazine. You're reading Reading isn't interrupted every 10 sentences or so. And when you listen to WAMU 88.5, your listening isn't interrupted every five minutes or so. You like long-form radio. We have to assume you like it because, well, you're listening. We'd like you to become a supporter because this kind of radio can only come to you with your support. So become a member now. 202-885-8850 is the number to call. Or you can do so by making a secure contribution online at WAMU.org. If you've been listening to WAMU and you're not a member yet, now is a great time to join the WAMU community and to join your fellow Tech Tuesday fans. We hope you'll become a member today. And we'd like to point out that thanks to WAMU's partnership with the Capital Area Food Bank, you can choose to direct your thank you gift to providing meals for people in need in our community. In 2014, the Capital Area Food Bank distributed 42 million pounds of food, the equivalent of 35 million meals to people in our community. Your sustaining membership of, let's say, $60 a month can include a thank you gift of 150 meals from the Capital Area Food Bank to people in need. So please go to our website, wamu.org, or call 202-885-8850. And we'd like to remind you about the fundamental reason we're asking you to become a member 
is because you are a listener. We would like to increase the percentage of our listeners who become members. That's the way this business model works. If you listen on a regular basis and never become a sustaining member of the station, then you might find your favorite programs disappearing. You don't want that to happen, do you? So become a member now. Call us at 202-885-8850 or make a secure contribution online at wamu.org. And thank you. You can count on WAMU. 88.5, and on NPR to give you stories that challenge, enlighten, connect, and sustain. Hi there, I'm Scott Simon of NPR News. Now consider how often you listen to WAMU each week and why. You'll hear fair-minded, balanced coverage of the world, stories that bring authentic voices and perspectives about climate education, healthcare, government, the arts, sports, and entertainment. Public radio doesn't work without you. Your investment in what WAMU does helps keep us strong, so please contribute today at 800-248-8850 or online at wamu.org. Your gift helps sustain WAMU today and tomorrow. While she was Secretary of State, if Hillary Clinton sent you an email, it reportedly came from her personal account, not from an official state.gov email address. White House officials insist that's not illegal. It just means she needs to turn over the emails to the government for archiving to comply with the Federal Records Act. She says she's handed over 55,000 pages of emails. Government emails are part of the public record, and archivists at the more than 100 federal agencies and departments have to collect them, store them, and then search them if members of Congress or the public make requests. The volume of emails created across the federal government every day makes that a daunting task. Some experts say it's time for the feds to bring in algorithms and search tools from the private sector to keep from drowning in a flood of unsearchable email. Joining me to look at the tech challenges of archiving government email is Miriam Nisbet, former director of the Office of Government Information Services within the National Archives and Records Administration. Miriam Nisbet, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Kojo. Also in studio with us is Jason Barron. He's an, he's an attorney who is of counsel at Drinker, Biddle & Reith, former director of litigation for the U.S. National Archives and Records Administration. Jason Barron, thank you for joining us. Thank you. If you have questions or comments, give us a call, 800-433-8850. Should all government emails be saved and become part of the public record? 800 800- Four three three eight eight five zero. You can send your email to kojo at wamu.org. Miriam Nisbet, the decision that government emails are part of the official record dates back to a lawsuit the National Security Archive filed seeking access to emails from Oliver North and President Reagan at the time of the Iran-Contra hearings. I should point out that the National Security Archive is a non-governmental agency that is a research institute at George Washington University. But what did that lawsuit ask for and what did the court decide? Um, well, it was a, 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 an historic lawsuit um, against the executive office of the president and the archivist of the United States seeking to preserve and get access to, under the Freedom of Information Act, emails uh, of the Reagan administration, uh, the first Bush administration, and ultimately it went into the Clinton administration as well. And those emails, as a result of that decision, now have to be made available. At the time you were the National Archives, Jason, you were the Justice Department. It's my understanding that you're both glad the decision came down the way that it did. Well, the decision is a landmark in uh, litigation against the government because it established that email can be a federal record. And uh, the case was brought in an era where there were less emails than there are today. At the end of the 1990s, there were 32 million emails from the Clinton White House. George W. Bush had 200 million emails uh, in his administration, and President Obama will leave office in 2017 um, with 1 billion emails expected to come into the legal custody of the National Archives. So the case is a precedent for the preservation of email records, and you can see the exponential curve here in a big data world. We have a huge job in government. Uh, The National Archives has a job to do to manage and preserve all of those emails. More recently, you helped draft new rules on managing government emails electronically by the end of next year and on transferring them to the National Archives electronically by the end of this decade. 
What are the new requirements? Well, these are uh, is a very important mandate. The archivist and OMB issued a managing government records directive in 2012 that said two deadlines. One is coming up at the end of 2016. By December 31, 2016, all emails need to be managed in every federal agency in electronic form. So no more print to paper as the official record-keeping policy of federal agencies. By 2019, December 31, 2019, this is an inflection point in history. This is a very big deal. Um, what the archivist has told the government is that from that day forward, any records that are appraised as permanent records of the United States need to be kept in an electronic or digital form for transfer eventually to the National Archives. So no more paper coming into the National Archives that's created after 2019. Permanent records of the United States will be digital. That's a very large challenge for the government, both of those mandates. Al, we'll hear the extent of the challenge right now because, Miriam, can you explain the process for saving and archiving government emails? Which ones are deemed worthy of storage and management by the National Archives and what happens to all the rest that are not? Well, it is a, it is a huge challenge. And although um, agencies, as you said, there are 100 departments and agencies, um, they um, are managing records in many different ways. But right now, although we are going to electronic record keeping um, for all kinds of records, uh, including email, we are not there yet. Um, the United States government uh, receives about 700,000 requests a year under the Freedom of Information Act. And uh, for many of the records that are sought, um, many of them are not electronic yet. They were not born digital. For those even that were born digital, um, looking for those records, finding the ones that are responsive, um, uh, hopefully they have been preserved as government records and they are in a, a, a somewhere, whether a filing cabinet, uh, virtually or literally, uh, they have to be located, they have to be processed, they have to be reviewed uh, ultimately for release to the public. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can call us at 800-433-8850. We're talking about archiving government emails. How quickly should government emails be available to the public in your view? Give us a call, 800-433-8850, or shoot us an email to kojo at wamu.org. Jason, you're concerned that if the government does not get its electronic records management under control, all these emails will effectively become impenetrable. How would algorithms that companies like Google or Netflix use help make archive searches faster? Well, that's exactly the right question to be asking. It's one that I've been uh, pursuing for the last decade or so. Uh, lawyers who litigate cases in very complex cases no longer rely solely on keyword searching or manual searching. What we rely on are algorithms to help us. So we look at a few documents, we give examples to the computer, and the computer codes what's relevant or not relevant um, within a lawsuit. Uh, and so we can, have, we can rely on a computer to do what 100 lawyers did over months and months in a weekend or a week, looking at a million emails. That is a huge step forward for the legal profession in large cases. It's increasingly being used. So my lectures on this subject have been to take what we've learned in the litigation realm and transfer it to what I call the information governance space. Uh, we want to be able to classify government records and to extract them from large databases so that those records are accessible to the public. If we rely on current methods of just turning pages or clicking through documents, archivists and records managers can't possibly look at millions or billions of electronic objects. We need the help of analytics and algorithms, and I'm hoping that the National Archives and other uh, agencies throughout the government will be interested in using these new techniques to look through and get better visibility into what I call dark data. Yes, because you say, forget about keywords. We're talking here about analyzing text, that we need forms of artificial intelligence applied to the archival environment. That's true. And we all are experiencing that in our lives. When we choose a Netflix, a movie, uh, 
the uh, queue is then filled with recommendations uh, for us to choose movies like that. How do they know? Because they're similar attributes. On Gmail, when we send messages, uh, Google knows what we've said and uh, pushes out advertising to us. We're all kind of familiar with these kind of algorithms. We can apply those to the records that are um, being preserved in government agencies. The current dispute this past week is about 55,000 pages of emails being returned to government custody. Think about what millions or billions of emails uh, represent. And we need to find better methods so that we can open them up for FOIA and for a history's sake. We're talking about the nation's history in the 21st century. Email and other forms of electronic records tell the record of this administration and future administrations. We live in a digital world. We have to find better tools to search those repositories and to have access to them. You're talking about 55,000 emails, the controversy around former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. We got a tweet from someone who says, the State Department issues email addresses to each user for both records and security. Hillary Clinton chose to disregard national security. Miriam, how much is the human touch still required to decide what emails to release to the public, even if we beef up the machine power, so to speak? Well, um, I, I think that there there is a human touch in every um, in every release that goes out under the Freedom of Information Act. Um, the technology that Jason uh, referred to that we certainly must use and we will be using more of um, is extremely helpful and indeed absolutely necessary for finding records. But nonetheless, once responsive records are found or a potentially uh, set of responsive documents are found, it is still um, uh, people. Um, You talked about this in your introduction, as a matter of fact. Uh, We still require (laughs) Some things people have to do. (laughs) Real people um, have to review. They have to look at the records, um, often a line-by-line review, particularly if you're looking for uh, potentially classified information, uh, information that would involve personal privacy, um, privileged information of other kind. It's still... Uh, it's still a human, very much a human uh, process. We're taking your comments or questions at 800-433-8850. Should all government emails be saved and become part of the public record? What do you say? 800-433-8850. You can send us email to kojo.wamu.org or go to our website, kojoshow.org, ask a question or make a comment there. From your standpoint, as the former Freedom of Information Act ombudsman at the National Archives, what challenges do email present for opening records to those who request them? Uh, well, it's interesting. Oftentimes, um, requests, Freedom of Information Act requests, are asking for all records. And so all records really means that. When a FOIA officer is searching for records in an agency, going to the different program offices involved, um, the request may be for records of all kinds, any format, uh, email being only one of them. In other cases, requesters are looking specifically for the email records. Why is that? It's because uh, it is now a ubiquitous tool uh, that we all use to conduct uh, government business every day. Um, Finding those records depends very much upon uh, what kind of record-keeping system an agency has. And until recently, um, except for the executive office of the president, virtually no other agency had electronic record-keeping for email. On to the telephones. We will start with Michael in Bethesda, Maryland. Don your headphones, please, so you can hear what Michael has to say. Michael, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yes, thank you. Um, I've worked for an agency for many years in this area, and uh, it's very difficult to do for a number of reasons. One is that agencies are divided into subgroups like bureaus or uh, smaller groups, and each one does its own archiving, and they feel that the information is their own. Another one is that um, there are a lot of different systems out there, and if a bureau or a subcomponent buys a system and they're not compatible with each other, then they don't uh, share it very well. And the third is that a lot of organizations, like one of your guests mentioned, have keyword search tools, not semantic search tools. 
And so it's really hard to get breakthrough those kinds of big uh, impediments to um, have uh, an environment where the information is the government is is not just part of a smaller organization. And I think uh, if your guests can comment on how to break down those barriers, that would be helpful. Jason Barron. Well, I think uh, the commenter is exactly right. We live in a world of compartmentalized information. Uh, large agencies have many, many legacy systems that are in different proprietary formats. Very difficult to search for records across those systems. Um, the answer that was posed about five years ago was go to the cloud. And um, in that way, the dream was is that you could, across an enterprise, put all your data up in the cloud and then easily search across it. What we have found is that um, going up to the cloud is more problematic. It is very much the initiative of this administration to be cloud first, to have agencies put email accounts up and to uh, encourage that. But um, at the National Archives, uh, when I was uh, director of litigation, we made sure that going to the cloud meant embedding records management on the front end so that we could assure that there was an archive that was capturing uh, emails appropriately. Too many agencies have CIOs who want to uh, jump to a cloud environment to solve some of the problems that the caller has mentioned, but has sort of forgotten about first principles on what the Federal Records Act requires and accessibility under the FOIA. And so this is a moment here where we, in um, all of us, should be uh, thinking about and talking about how to be more efficient in the space using the best tools and technologies that agencies have. Um, and uh, as, as advanced as these search techniques are, um, I'm well aware that there's a cost associated with it. So one needs to make a business case uh, in each agency for the use of the best tools and also to be smart about going to the cloud. Don't have a lot of time yet, but since I brought this up earlier, I need your reaction to it, the news that former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton used her own private email address for State Department business run from her own private server. Are you satisfied that what she's reportedly turned over for archiving meets the federal requirements and will provide the historical record that's supposed to be available to the public, Maria? Um, I think uh, there's a, a lot of information that we still need to hear about that. And your position, Jason? I think there are legitimate questions. Miriam is right. Um, there is uh, uh, a question that's in the air as to um, uh, how her staff uh, actually decided the 55,000 pages of documents and what else is out there. It's a responsibility of the State Department uh, to take adequate steps to make sure that all government records are returned into its custody. I'm very glad that the State Department asked for the return of government records for um, uh, a number of secretaries of state. I hope that they follow through. Um, and, but there are questions that are out there, and uh, today um, the Secretary of State is uh, going to be making some sort of press conference announcement on that. And I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Jason Barron is an attorney who is of counsel at Drinker Biddle and Reith, former director of litigation for the U.S. National Archives and Records Administration. Miriam Nisbet is former director of the Office of Government Information Services within the National Archives and Records Administration. Thank you very much for joining us, and thank you all for listening. I'm Kojo Nandi. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from General Dynamics IT Cloud Solutions, providing your enterprise with secure federal cloud solutions. General Dynamics Cloud Solutions, gdit.com slash cloud. And from Comcast Business, with Internet that's built from the ground up to be reliable, Comcast Business is built for business. More information about business-grade Internet, voice, and TV is at ComcastBusiness.com. Hi, I'm Matt McCleskey. When you're planning tomorrow's activities, there are things you have to do. And things you want to do. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. We're there for you with the latest news, and we always take time to put a smile on your face. Every Tuesday, Herman fills a shopping cart with groceries and makes home deliveries to his neighbors. Wake up tomorrow with Morning Edition, starting at 5. My name is Larry White. I'm the executive director for Mid-County United Ministries in Wheaton, and we run the Joseph A. Mattingly Food Pantry 
we are one small agency with a lot of other organizations helping us. And one of those agencies is the Capital Area Food Bank. A large part of the food that we put on our shelves comes through the food bank. I'm not surprised that a lot of people who are familiar with Montgomery County really don't think that there are people in this county who would need a food pantry. Montgomery County, a wealthy county, you actually have people in Montgomery County who would come and need food, and the answer is we really do. This is the fourth day of our winter membership campaign here at WMU 88.5. You know the drill. We're asking you to become a member or to renew your membership, and so as to avoid all confusion when you make your contribution, if their contribution happens to be a sustaining membership of $100 per month, we simply would like to say thank you. We say thank you in a number of ways. One of the ways in which we can say thank you during this membership campaign is because of our partnership with the Capital Area Food Bank. You make your contribution of $100 per month, a sustaining contribution, and the Capital Area Food Bank is able to provide 250 meals to people who need them as a result of the partnership. So your contribution is to WAMU 88.5, your thank you gift comes in the form of meals being offered to people who need them. So make that call now. Get a twofer, 202-885-8850 is the number to call. We have a goal this hour of $6,000. We have $2,526 left to meet that goal. And joining me in studio is producer Kathy Goldgeier. Thanks, Kojo. Well, this is our Tech Tuesday hour every Tuesday noon on the Kojo Namdi Show, and we've just been talking about the huge challenge of managing billions of government emails, and it makes my head spin. I can barely <laughs> manage the, uh, the, I guess, hundreds of emails that I get and find them when I'm looking for them. Um, we know that technology gives us so many choices today and so many decisions to make about what to save, where to keep it, how to find it. In the same way, you have more sources of news to choose from than ever before. Newspapers, websites, blogs, social media, they all provide a deluge of information about what's going on in the world. But you always know where to find the thoughtful, insightful news and talk shows that you rely on, and that's here at WAMU. Few other outlets inspire the degree of trust that WAMU listeners place in public radio. And we hope that the trust that you have in WAMU inspires you to make a financial contribution. Listener donations are an important part of how we pay for the programming you listen to, and we hope you'll make an investment yourself. Maybe you'll consider a sustaining membership of $60 a month. You can do that by going to our website, wamu.org, or by calling 202-885-8850. In the interest of full disclosure, I have to tell you that the reason that Kathy Golgai has problems finding emails is because she, like yours truly, never clears out their inbox completely. <laughs> so it makes it difficult to find emails. But you always know where to find WAMU 88.5. It's easy to find. You keep it on your dial. You keep it on your phone. And you can listen to it anytime you want to. We want to be available for you all the time. You don't really have to search for us. And because you're listening right now, we know that you have found us. We'd like you to continue to find us. And the best way to assure that is by becoming a member or renewing your membership now. So make that call. We have... WAMU 88.5 is your listener-supported NPR news station in the greater Washington, D.C. region. You can support the Kojo Namdi Show and all the regional coverage you value by becoming a member today. Click the Donate button at WAMU.org and thanks.